And in verse 51 through verse 53, he gives the interpretation for the whole sermon. How we're, what we're supposed to be looking out for. John in his gospel does a similar thing. So that when you get to the end, you're like, oh, now I need to go back and, and re-read everything, re-watch everything. Good movies that leave you in suspense kind of do this. Once you see how it all wraps up, then you go back and look for all the threads that the author left. In a similar way, there is a pattern which was held out to us in verse 51 through 53. And, and it very simply goes like this. The people of Israel had sinfully resisted the Holy Spirit, specifically regarding Christ. But Stephen's goal is to show them that it's, it's not just them in that day, but they're following after their fathers who were uncircumcised in heart, who likewise resisted the Holy Spirit. That, that's the major pattern that we see in this section. Now, there is a topic, I'm going to give you a word, typology, typology, and that's what we're going to do today. Most evangelicals, I find, have no clue what I'm talking about when I say that word, typology. And there are good men who also throw out the baby with the bathwater because this is a kind of category which can be misused. So guys from TMS or John MacArthur, I think, throw out the baby with the bathwater in this regard and abandon the Reformed hermeneutic of seeing patterns in Scripture. Uh, we need to have some serious controls on what we see, but <clears throat> we're not talking about uh, every time we see red, it's a scarlet thread of the blood of Christ throughout the Bible. That's, that's not true. Uh, we are here looking for patterns in the scripture. I showed you that this is specifically what is done by Luke himself in chapter 3, 21 through 26. I did three sermons and we talked about the ways that um, were summarized both with Abraham or with Moses or with the kings, the period of the kings, and how that all pointed forward to Christ. That was sermons in that vein. But what is it? Uh, I like to, uh, Sinclair Ferguson has a good way to describe this. From the Old Testament perspective, there is a preparing of the people of God for the Messiah, for Christ. And it's like a prophetic, uh, well, let's say it's like a, it's a pop-up picture book version. So when we see the prophets, some of what they say or even some of what they do is like a vivid display of what's going to happen. We could point out numerous events, but all of these are to point forward towards Christ. And since this is somewhat of a foreign subject, even though we've recently heard about it, um, and it's misused in the past. I'm going to try my best to go extra slow today in order to be really clear on exactly how to read the Bible this way. And my fundamental argument today is that Luke wants us to read the Bible this way. So, for example, I point out just the fact that if you go through Matthew, talked with Jeff Tollison, some of you who were here when Jeff Tollison was preaching through Matthew, uh, he explained it as arrows. You would have events that were like arrows pointing towards a 
fulfillment, pointing towards Christ. So Moses goes up on the mountain and delivers the law, receives and delivers the law. When Jesus in Sermon on the Mount goes up on the mountain and even explicitly quotes the law and then delivers a new law to them, as it were. He is a, Moses was a type of Christ to come. Let me give you two more examples because I want us to get this right. I don't want us to read the Bible in a a wrong way, but I also don't want you to under-read the Bible, as it were, here. Um, Typology. The scriptures intend to communicate patterns to us such that we have a, a grid for for comparing and seeing Christ. So two quick examples is the book of Hebrews intentionally and very thoroughly uh, uses the type of priest or high priest and then shows how Jesus fulfills that office. And the astute Jew who knows the Bible or knows the Old Testament scriptures would go, well, how, how does he fulfill the role of priest? He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He's not from the right tribe. He can't do that. And the author of Hebrews makes it clear that he has a superior priesthood and he does some interesting things with Melchizedek in order to prove that point in Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 and so forth. But there is a, a, a shadow. Hebrews and Colossians both say, that uh, use the language of, of shadow, if you want another word. There is a shadow of the priestly office, but the actual substance belongs to Christ. So you are like your shadow in the sun. It's your outline, but it's not the substance of who you are. It's just a reflection. And what we see in the Old Testament is that shadowy figure which is to prepare you for when the true Messiah comes. Romans 5 is one other really clear place, just so that you have categories for this before I get into Joseph here, is Romans 5 talks about Christ and contrasts him with Adam. You have two Adams in the Bible, such that even in 1 Corinthians 15, 45-ish or so, has the language even of the first Adam and the second Adam. Second Adam's Jesus. He is a type of the one who was to come. He is the head of humanity, but Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of redeemed humanity. And Adam is the head of fallen humanity. You have a pattern so that you could bring these things together and go, oh, there's similarities and then also distinguish one from the other. And in the case of Christ, it's always that he's greater. So you have a, a pattern which is fulfilled in Christ, and he's the greater fulfillment of all these things. We'll talk about that as we go. But <clears throat> let us hop into verse 9 and see what we're looking at here. He says, after having talked about the 12 patriarchs being born to Jacob, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph sold him into slavery. <clears throat> Notice, first of all, that Joseph's story starts without any background at all. This is a pastoral note that I'm going to make in a second. 
why were they jealous? Why does he not say? Well, first thing is that Stephen assumes his audience is very familiar with Genesis 37 through 50. Do you all have that in your head right now? You know Genesis 37 through 50, all those chapters. Here's a personal challenge to you. You should be expected to know Joseph's story. You, you should. All Christians should know Joseph's story. There are major Old Testament figures. Joseph is one of those. He encompasses a lot of chapters in Genesis. Genesis is a very important book. You don't have to know every detail of the Old Testament. I certainly don't. But you should know the large swaths and major portions. And so if you don't, that's what you're doing for the next seven months as a pastoral exhortation. You will learn your Old Testament. Start today. (laughs) Now, first thing. And my exhortation is do family worship every single day. Even if you're in the New Testament and you'll come across Old Testament references, there are certain references that you'll come up over and over and over again. I don't know how many times Moses occurs in the scriptures, but you should know Moses' general story. That is one that'll come up again and again and again, or Joseph or many other figures. You should go, okay, I know who those people are. So when you come across it in the New Testament in your family worship, you go back and you go, okay, that's the context. That's what he's talking about. And what that'll help you do for sure is to understand how Matthew, for example, will go to Hosea and say, out of Egypt, I called my son, which refers to the whole people of Israel, but he says is fulfilled in Christ. You won't understand how to read Stephen's sermon if you can't do that. And my, my job here is to help you get in the right direction and hopefully make it clear what we should be seeing Second of all, um, Sunday school, although it's coming to an end, I would carve that out of your week. Make that uh, something that you do every single week. We're going through the London Confession of Faith, and those are the very basics of the Christian faith, even though that sounds like, for some of us, like scholarly work. (laughs) No, it was the common fodder of the day in times past, yet for most of us, it's high-level stuff, but it's really not. Uh, we as Americans are, are way undereducated in our Christian faith, and this ought not to be. So make Sunday school priority for yourselves. Now let us get back into Joseph. That's just a pastoral exhortation. The second reason that he starts off without any context and just talks about the brothers being jealous is not only because they know what the context is, but he wants to jump into the pattern. This is the thing that he's calling out from the beginning, that they are resisting the Holy Spirit in a wrong way. The first reason that they rejected Joseph is because he was the baby of the family and he got treated like the baby of the family. Jacob loved him more than the other sons, and so they didn't want to talk to him because of that. They couldn't be friendly with him. That's the first reason. But the more important reason that you should know that they hated Joseph is because he had prophetic dreams like God is accustomed to do in the Old Testament, particularly, and in in the days of Jesus. There is prophetic dreams, which is the same exact pattern that Jacob had. Jacob, as a 
as one of the main three, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob named Israel, he had dreams throughout his whole life. He was a, a prophet of God. And like him, God had selected one of his sons, the, the youngest of the son, to also bless with prophetic dreams. So God had given Joseph messages, and this is the reason that his brothers hated him. We don't like what you have to say because his message was, uh, I got this dream that you're all going to bow down to me. <laughs> they don't like him anyways. And so that message was not received, though it wasn't his message. It was God's message for his people. They are to expect. They were anticipating. God had made promises to this nation. And they were expecting the seed uh, that crushes the head of the serpent. They were expecting the, the, this people who at this time don't have any plot of land. And they're in Egypt when Joseph is there to expand into a nation and to be brought into Canaan. They, they're expecting God's revelation. At least they should have been. But they weren't. When it came... They didn't want to hear it. They resisted the Holy Spirit who was moving in Joseph. They hated him for his prophetic dreams. They hated that God had chosen him to raise him up over the family and to rule them. They were jealous. They wanted the place of honor themselves. It's hard not to think of the Pharisees here who, out of jealousy, rejected Christ Jesus. Now, although the law, so if you're thinking about timeline here, Joseph, youngest son of Jacob, he does not have the law of Moses. Moses isn't born yet. But what we know from Scripture is that Romans 2 tells us that the commandments of the law, that is the moral precepts of God in the Ten Commandments, are written on every individual heart. Adam in the garden has... Uh, a positive command not to eat of the tree, but he also has the law of God, the Ten Commandments, written on his heart to be observed and obeyed. They and we inherently know as people that stealing, Eighth Commandment, is wrong. People are entitled to things, property rights. It's, it's essential to our our our. Western canon of law. But what did they do? They stole his whole person and gave him into bondage and to slavery. They broke the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal even another person. And that's called man stealing in the Bible, which later in the law of Moses becomes a capital crime, one in which you would be stoned for. And that is a good law. We should probably reinstitute that. We've outlawed it. Thank you to Christianity. Slavery is illegal now. It's because we believe the law of God is applicable to us. We must recognize that what is intended to be communicated here is simply this idea of the word of God was still coming and being progressively revealed. Israel was expecting prophets to arise. They were expecting words from the Lord. They were expecting these things to happen. 
Yet when it came, they were intolerant. They could not listen to the word of God. They rejected it. And so they handed their brother over. Now, what I want to do is I want to read 9 and 10. But I want to make some theological application because I don't want you to miss what happens here next or why Luke records this sermon. Why this one? You know, he could record all sorts of stuff. Why does he give it the same treatment? You know, some other sermons, we have a long sermon of Peter in chapter 2. It's really long. And then we have all the rest of his sermons, which are super short, because he's covering the same ground. But this one, he expands huge. Why does he do that? Spends 50 verses on this sermon at the time. Ponder that for yourselves. I won't fully answer it today. But what it means for us is Acts is written after these events, and it's written also for our instruction. It's, it's intended to communicate something of the way of the Holy Spirit so that his, his formal indictment at the end is, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. In answer to the question, well, is Jesus going to destroy the temple and is Moses going to overturn the customs? And his answer is, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. And so there is, in this sense, a larger pattern at play that each of these individuals fit into, even Stephen himself. So let me read 9 and 10 so it's in your mind and you have an, uh, an idea of where we're going here. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, handed him over into Egypt. But God was with him and brought him out or rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him grace and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him leader, ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So what does Luke intend to communicate? He is intending to communicate not only how the Holy Spirit was in the life of Christ Jesus. That is what he's answering. That's of course true. But he wants to say the Holy Spirit was active with the fathers as well. But he was rejected. The Holy Spirit was having dealings in God's people in Israel. This is not the first time this has happened. This is an old pattern which Jesus fits into. He is not merely retelling the story of what God has done in the past, but he is showing how there's an organic unity to the work of the Spirit, both in the Old Testament and right there with Stephen and in Christ. And he wants to draw that out for us. Don't let it slip your notice, as I just read, that there is an intentional parallel between Joseph and Stephen, who is speaking. You notice that Joseph is given, in the ESV it says favor, the word literally is grace and wisdom before Pharaoh. Well, what did it say last chapter in three different places about Stephen? Well, Stephen was filled with the spirit and wisdom and grace uses all the same terminology 
even excessively, so that when Stephen is preaching, we as readers, although Stephen himself doesn't fully unpack all of this, they kill him before he's done with his sermon, okay? So he doesn't say everything. But what his pattern is, is obvious. There's a connection with him and Joseph. There's a connection with Jesus and both of those. We are supposed to see that there is an overarching pattern and there's sort of two directions in which it goes. Stephen is filled with the Spirit. Joseph is filled with the Spirit. And both of them are filled with the Spirit because of Christ in in different ways. Because one is pointing forward to Christ and uh, being filled with the Spirit. And Christ is pointing forward to us in the church who have the Spirit as well to our last person. So I hope you see the intention here. There is a, a distinct path which we should be reading this. <clears throat> Here's one more, one more, one and a half observations here. Is God, if we're thinking about Joseph, selects, a person out and he's going to make a nation right now. The start of the nation's there. They got 12 patriarchs turns into 12 tribes, right? And there's 75 people who are saved by what God does in Joseph, uh, not counting some. If you go read back in the story, there's more than 75, but you should see how they count those up. It's fascinating to look at. But what we see here is that God regularly deals with his people on the basis of a representative. We can talk about dealing with all of humanity in terms of Adam, our father who we're related to. We're all sinful because of what Adam did and us represented by him. And we are all made righteous because of our covenant representative Christ and what he did and our faith in him. We also see that God deals with the whole nation of Israel on the basis of Abraham. And the basis of Isaac and Jacob, the, the pattern remains in terms of Joseph. Joseph is who God is going to deal with specifically, uniquely, set him apart by a prophetic dream and given him the office of a prophet to speak the word of God to God's people for their salvation. And he deals with Israel according to a, a representative of sorts. You can take Moses, you can take many others. But here, God is like a master storyteller. He sets up a pattern in Joseph, though it's part of real redemptive history. All these things actually occur. Yet at the same time, he intends to put on a sort of prophetic dress rehearsal. I think that's a really good image for you. What happens in the Old Testament is a prophetic dress rehearsal in many cases that prepares God's people to see a particular pattern that when the live action history comes about, they're like, ah, I've seen the rehearsal for this. This is the Christ. He's come. That is the point. Yet... They didn't perceive these things. They did not perceive these things. They were hard of heart and they rejected their Messiah. So in terms of Joseph, 
Joseph and his life story, he lives into a prophetic dress rehearsal such that we are to come to expect a greater Joseph someday. Same way that we expect a greater David, David's son. That's why I write a Davidson, by the way. Just a side note. So, David, we saw in chapter 2, you can go back and read this. David had real words given to him. Psalm 16, Psalm 110, those things that were said to David specifically, yet they referred to the Christ that was ahead. And David is a a type of Christ, same way that we'll see Joseph. And what I want to do is laid out in five points here. Verse 9, we'll have presence. Verse 10, we'll have deliverance after rejection. We'll also have grace and wisdom. Verse 10, we'll also have ruler or leader. And then 11 through 14, deliverer. That's how I'm going to go about it. Presence, deliverance, grace and wisdom, ruler, deliverer. So first, verse 9, very simple phrase, but potent. The patriarchs were jealous, sold them into Egypt, but God was with him. This is only after rejection that this is the experience of Joseph. God being with him after having been rejected by God's people. Israel is God's people in the Old Testament, yet they did not receive him, but God wasn't to be considered as abandoning him, though I'm sure that was a temptation for Joseph when you're in slavery. He experienced the near presence of God by the Spirit. The Spirit was active in his life, and so we should draw a line from here to Christ. Christ, in the midst of Suffering was not abandoned by God the Father. Read all of Psalm 22. Rather, in that affliction, in that trial, God was seen as especially present with his chosen one. He was standing at his right hand, to use the words of the psalm. Presence while in suffering. This is all of Jesus' life, really all of his humiliation. Secondly, deliverance. So after Israel rejected Joseph, verse 10, God was with him and because he's with him, rescued him out of all of his afflictions. So Israel rejects Joseph Joseph is in much affliction, but is rescued out of it. God's purposes for his people is not to simply cause them to avoid it, not to pull them out before it happens. Rather, they are to be a kind of people who are rehearsing, even in the story of Israel, that they are to be prepared to suffer and to receive a suffering Christ a suffering Messiah. They will one day have an anointed one who will be brought 
down into the darkness of slavery because that's where the fall has brought all of us. Down into slavery of our sin. They were taught to look for one who, being subjected to the deepest woe and to slavery, would burst forth into freedom for his people. Christ is the one who, as it were, paves the way for all of God's people. And that is through the same kinds of suffering that we have incurred for our sin. We need a one who will take us by the hand in the midst of hell and bring us to glory. That is the kind of suffering Messiah that they needed. They had to be prepared for that. And you'll notice in the time of Christ that they weren't. They were not ready to hear that Jesus would suffer and die. They could hardly receive that word at all, though the prophets bear witness to it. Isaiah 53 or many, many, many other places. Most of David's experience, Joseph's experience. This is God's way of preparing them. Next, titled The Spirit-Born Grace and Wisdom. Verse 10, he's delivered out of his affliction and the way, the means by which that actually happens, just to catch you up on the story, if you're a little rusty, is Joseph goes into slavery. He ends up uh, with two different people, a cupbearer to the king and a baker. The baker, uh, he has, they both have dreams and Joseph interprets the dreams. The baker uh, lifts up his head, that is, gets his... Uh, gets hung, and the other one, his head is lifted up, that is, he's exalted, and he's restored to his place, and that's the cupbearer. Joseph had said, hey, when you get out, and you're restored to your office, don't forget about me. (laughs) He forgot about him, Uh, and that was for a particular purpose. He was given supernatural grace, not only to interpret his own dream early in the story about being exalted over his brothers, even even Jacob himself, but yet he is also given grace to interpret other people's dreams and to give the meaning of these things such that when Pharaoh has a dream, the cupbearer remembers, oh, there's this Hebrew guy in prison that I was with, and, and he knows how to interpret dreams, and none of your guys can do it. Let's call this Hebrew guy and maybe he can do dreams. And this is the very means God endows this person with, you know, we should blur the lines a little bit because this is the pattern. We're supposed to see Stephen here. He's filled with grace and wisdom such that no one can stand against his words because he's speaking from the Holy Spirit. Joseph too, speaking from the Spirit of God, foretells what is going to happen in Egypt and is the means by which he is exalted. So with Christ, Christ filled with the Spirit, speaks the word of his own death and resurrection and then thereby fulfills it. This is a pointer here in Joseph to Christ. One classic prophetic passage that points to this. Let me make this clear because I don't think I was explicit. That this is the Holy Spirit operating 
in this representative, this person that God selects. And, and they thereby, these powers, enter into exaltation from their place. They are delivered, in a sense, and they are also exalted to a place of power. So this is, I didn't write the reference. I think it's uh, Isaiah, 60, Isaiah 61. The spirit of Yahweh God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me. You remember, that's the term Messiah or Christ. So anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. The people were specifically looking for one in whom would be the Holy Spirit and would empower him for a particular ministry, a gospel ministry, a a ministry of freedom. And and we could unpack that further and further. But notice, well, let me just quote to you another place. John the Baptist, when he is sent out, relays this about the message God gave to him. He testifies, this is the end of John 1. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him, speaking about Christ. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. You see the spirit in the Old Testament with Joseph points forward to the spirit with Christ, giving particular abilities and gifts such that they might say, son of God. They might say, greater David, David's son. They might say, greater Moses. Or they might say, uh, the fulfillment of God's promises of the suffering servant or what have you. So just to recap, God's with him in his affliction. He is delivered out of that affliction and and exalted. And the means by which is the spirit rests on him such that he has God's uh, spirit for the ministry that's given to him. And now we see in Egypt, uh, verse 10, he is given grace and favor specifically before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all of his household. So Egypt at this time was most likely at its zenith. It was at its like highest status and most powerful place. It is symbolically the highest throne in the world. That's the idea. You have a, a, a power that is greater than any other power. It symbolically stands that way. So Peter, when he preaches in chapter 2 says that Christ, crucified and rejected by you, has been with God, and God has resurrected him and exalted him to sit on David's throne in heaven and to rule over the world from there. Thus, I conclude, he's both Lord and Christ. This is the pattern. We should see that Christ was to be exalted on high 
fulfilling God's promises to establish his king in Zion, Psalm 2. And Egypt is a, set, is a sort of picture. It is the highest power. And yet this is the office which will rule over the world, will feed the world, keep it from starvation and death. This is the exact place that Christ is to inhabit. <clears throat> I wish I had more time to do this, but Stephen uses a word by way of Luke, um, hegumenon. The root word is, we've seen a number of times, I'll just point to a founder or, or author of life. There's this word to, to lead, and, and that is the word here. And so sometimes it's hard to translate because it's different different varieties in different ways. But he uses a word that's common in Acts so far for really important passages. And so you could say ruler on the one hand, or you could say leader. Um, and we've said in the past, like founder is another good one. He's leading a people, but he's at its head. He's the, the founder of a way. That's the kind of connotation and idea. Let me just quote to you Matthew so you don't take my word for it. Same word, hegumenon. Matthew 2, 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, a leader, who will shepherd my people Israel. So there's one. I cannot also help to point out Hebrews 2.10 using the same root word describes Jesus as leading, same word there, leading many sons to glory and is also in the same sentence really called the ruler or founder, leader of salvation. There is this picture about being exalted and and. and carrying with you salvation, carrying blessing for all those in the train of your robe. There is here another picture that points to Christ. Now this last section, I'm going to read 11 through 14 and and hopefully wrap this up nicely so that you hear everything you need to hear. 11 through 14, it says, Now there came a famine. So he's been exalted Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan. And what happens to the fathers? There is a great affliction and our fathers could not find food. Well, their their forerunner, their founder had already gone before them. He had already paved the way. And so when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out Our fathers on their first visit and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. So obviously the subtext there is they found food. They were fed. They were saved from their affliction, just as Joseph had been before them. He paved the way for it. I wish I had more time. I keep my sermons for your sake around 45 minutes. I'll just point out the fact that here, if you're following what I'm saying, Joseph then makes a sort of transition after having been exalted. He actually 
there is, you can go look at the words, called, made known, or, or manifest. Um, these, these pictures um, provided for going into a different land, these are in the language itself intentional parallels now between Joseph and Abraham. Abraham was called out by God and was provided for and saved. And we have the same parallels. This is what the Christ is to do. It's to go before his people, be exalted so that they might be saved. Let me read this section. You're like, well, what's the famine all about? Why is this even here? Like, you didn't really make your point, at least not in our minds. Not unless you're reading it correct. I think Jesus, in an extended section in John chapter 6, tells us what this all means specifically. I'm going to read a, a big section here from verse 29 and, and following. Uh, let me just give you the context. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just done the miracle of the, the bread, the, the multiplication of the bread, the feeding of the 5,000. There's a group of Jews who ride across the lake in order to come find Jesus. And he doesn't entrust himself to them. And he calls them very explicitly unbelievers. You're not following me because of anything else, but you were fed. And so he says in verse 29, so they they ask, well, I'm going to go up to 26. So they found him and said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. If Joseph is a parallel to Jesus, I hope you're making that connection. He's feeding Israel and keeping them alive. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. That is... Go across the New Testament. That is the language of having the Holy Spirit on you. Then they said to him, what must we be doing to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They're unbelievers. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now they grumble because he says he's the bread of heaven. They're like, hey, we know your mom. 
What are you talking about coming from heaven? Uh, and he says, do not, well, I'll stop there. There's lots more we could read, but Jesus is pulling into his discussion to show that he's the Messiah, uh, a situation in the wilderness whereby they're hungry and they're not fed, they're going to die. Yet God, instead of having him find food or something like that, sends bread from heaven supernaturally so that they might preserve their life, save them. Now, we are supposed to see this as a picture that is to be fulfilled later. In the same way that Joseph, being exalted, then providentially there's famine everywhere. Jacob and his family are going to die unless... Somebody provides them bread. And who was it? It was the man on whom the Spirit of God was, who was delivered out of affliction, who was exalted, and then feeds them what they need for their life. This is a clear testimony to the work that has happened in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bread of heaven. What is happening here is bigger than the simply the story. It is that God prepares his people to receive Christ. Now, having said that, let me try to wrap this up so you're not confused. I know this may feel new for lots of you, though it's not new in the history of the Reformed tradition in the least. Let me just say why is he saying this? Let's remember that this is an answer. It's not a non-answer. It is an answer to the question, is it so that Jesus is going to destroy the temple? Is it so that he's going to change the customs handed down by Moses? The short answer is, yeah. Yep, you got it. Jesus said that. But that's not the story. That's, that's not the whole story. Those things were pointing forward to the true bread from heaven. The, how did they miss this? They, they were stuck on the shadows, as it were. They were lost in the shadows. They thought about and they understood at least part of what the bread from heaven meant. They, they knew the shadow They weren't looking for the substance. They knew the temple, God's presence with his people. They didn't see who Christ was. They they knew the customs of Moses, the sacrificial system in its various ways, but they're not making the connection. They didn't realize that the substance was in the future, something greater, something better. They, They were familiar with the prophetic dress rehearsal, but they weren't looking for the live action shoot. They weren't looking for the Christ. Jesus is the bread of heaven. The temple was destroyed and Jesus raised it up on the third day. Because his temple is his body. It's God's with his people. Emmanuel, the greater Joseph, has come to rule all of God's people and deliver us from our death. To provide for us the bread of life in him. The greater Joseph has come. Remember what I said earlier. That this Old Testament pattern is aimed at Christ. But is specifically also aimed at us. 
It answers the question about Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, and then is about to be rejected by his people and crucified, not crucified. They're going to crucify him in one sense, but he is stoned to death at the end of this account. <clears throat> Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit as well. And this pattern, which applies to Jesus, we heard in John, is going to apply to all of Jesus' people. This is the one who God told me is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That happened at Pentecost. That was the pattern. So it not only is explanatory for how to read the Old Testament, but also to understand who you are. What your mission is all about. What we are to do by the Spirit. The the Spirit is poured out in full measure. And the question over and over again is why? Bethel Redding says it's to laugh on the floor. Is that what the Spirit's all about? Why do we have the Spirit in full measure from the least to the greatest? That's the promises of the new covenant. Why? It is because in this age, after Christ has been exalted and sends his Spirit and pours it out in full measure on the church in a way that was not in the past. Only Joseph or Moses or particular figures have it. Now all of us have the Spirit and this anointing from God, as First John calls it, such that we are Christians, anointed ones, just like Jesus. We are in an age whereby Christ and his work has renewed his purpose for humanity. He has set us apart by the Spirit, apart from the rest of the world, and commissioned us by his Spirit with a ministry. That is the ministry of Christ. I think Christian is a very appropriate term, though it'll appear in Acts later. Uh, first being called that, it sounds even derogatory perhaps, But this is a good pattern. There's a a connection we're supposed to see. We are God's people and we have a ministry, although it's ours in a sense, like I have a, a ministry here in this church. My ministry is just a subset of Christ's ministry to the world. That's why you exist, church. What has happened? What's the big story? Well, Adam in the garden had a purpose given to him, a commission. We call it the cultural mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, or this other aspect. Have dominion over the whole earth. Make the whole world God's place, God's sanctuary, God's temple. I'll expand this later, I'm sure, at some point. The whole world is supposed to be a garden sanctuary. That was the original intention. That was what was given. But what happened? You all know we're part of the story. We fell devastatingly into sin. Unable to bring everything under the sway of God like the garden was. Such that when sin happened they were expelled from God's presence. Barred from the inner courts of the temple. Jesus comes to bring the temple in us. He tears the veil. 
and sends God's presence global. And what we have now is a portion of the ministry. So we're called uh, royal priesthood. We are called God's temple. We are called all these things. The spirit in our lives is because we have had a renewed mandate. You know where it is. The end of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. On he- in heaven and on earth. Most evangelicals accept in heaven. He's got a spiritual reign up there. <laughs> but he says on earth. That's why Revelation calls him the ruler of kings on, on the earth. He rules over our earth as well as heaven. And he's given us marching orders. Go therefore and Christianize the world. Baptize the nations. Bring them into full submission to Christ. Whether, however you see that working out. I know how I see it working out. You can talk a bit to me about it later. But we all have the same marching orders. Make the whole world Christian. All of it. Whether or not you think that will be successful in this time is a different story. But the Great Commission is to disciple all nations. It is what the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth, looks like after the fall into sin and after the resurrection. It's just cultural mandate 2.0. It is have dominion over the whole earth. Make it all God's place. Make it his temple. And how do you do that? You do that by the spirit. You do that by taking the words of God and causing everything you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. You farm like a Christian, not like a pagan. You don't sacrifice like they did in the Old Testament, your children, so that the gods will be appeased and you'll have a fruitful crop. No, you, you pray and you ask the Lord to bless your harvest. And then you go and you faithfully labor and you wait. And you wait. The farmer's got to wait a lot. You, you wait uh, in terms of your crop, your investment, your wealth that you pour into the ground. You eat like a Christian. You eat pork and brisket and other stuff like that. You go do your job in your home or outside your home as a Christian. That's how God's kingdom comes to the earth. That's how, that's why you've been given the spirit. That's why you've been given the word of God. Such that everything would participate in your new person. You, you see, we've been brought from an old person. I'll wrap up with this, trust me. We, we've been brought from a, a man who's fell into corruption, into sin and death. And Christ is called the new man, the new Adam. We've been renewed in the image of God. He is the expressed image of God. He has done what Adam failed to do and has brought us into himself, united us with him and his purposes in the world. That is to live unto God's glory. And so when we live, we do so in a Christian way, in every way. We use our phones as Christians. Not as the rest of the world. And we'll talk about the details later. That's hard. There's lots of things we could talk about. Ways that Christians can use their devices. 
But the second aspect that we're more familiar with probably or think about more often is sharing the gospel. We share the gospel that there is a king established in the heavens who rules over the earth and people, the gospel is that they will either be brought into the renewed man, the new Adam who is going to make a renewed creation in the fullest sense and has a renewed purpose for all of their life. That is to learn all that Christ has to say and to obey him, to be baptized into his name and partake in fellowship with him at the table or to be brought as an enemy to be placed as a footstool for his feet. That's the gospel. There is the gospel of the promise of what Christ is doing and being participants in it or to be laid asunder under his sword. So application to the Lord's Supper. This meal is a type in a sense. It is not the fullness of uh, the table is a representation body and blood of Christ in the past, but it is also a representation of our now fellowship, which will only be fulfilled in the, in the renovated, resurrected heavens and earth. It is one in which we, very similarly to the saints of old, perform the ritual and look forward to the fact that because this is the new covenant ritual that I have faith in, I will have, and you will have, and we will have as the family of God, a table of fellowship before us in in eternity far superior to what we have here. It's, it's a type. It's a shadow that looks for fulfillment. So that whenever we come to the table, let us not mainly think about, and in fact, mostly not think about our past sins. The body and blood of Christ is shed and has accomplished its purposes. You're thinking about your sin bearer. And so insofar as your sins have been born in him, that's how you think about it. But you think about him and you think about him in the future, bringing you into his wedding feast such that uh, will be like no other where the whole world is under the sway of the king of kings where the whole world is fully Christianized, that the kingdom of God is constituent to the whole created universe. That is the day that we look forward to in the supper. That table fellowship where there's peace and no longer do we need swords or spears or any such thing. I'm going to... Uh, do this differently like I have 